Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. How's it going, church? Did you need permission? Hey, so glad you're with us um, today. Two quick things I'm going to dive in. Um, A few weeks ago, I did vision message, and I talked about ways you can engage. There's two really big ones coming up. The first one is baptism, and baptism is a big deal around here. We celebrate that hopefully more than we celebrate anything else. And so if that's you, like if you're ready to take that step, um, that's happening in a couple weeks, or I think next week. And you can go to the Centerpoint app and um, sign up for that today. And I just want to give this one little like, bit of encouragement because everybody has this idea of baptism is such a big deal, and it is. But there's this idea of like, I got to get something cleaned up or get things right or you know, be a better version of myself, which is not the case at all for baptism. Because that's not the case at all for salvation. The point of, of baptism is to celebrate how awesome Jesus is, not how awesome you are. So if you find yourself like busted up, I still haven't gotten it right. Okay, great. That's, I mean, Jesus has invited you to follow him. And going public through baptism is just a declaration like I'm with Jesus. Jesus has changed something in me, even if my behavior hasn't caught up yet. So, so many of you have made decisions and that's the next step for you. So I cannot encourage you enough to um, go to the app. We're going to help you um, along the way. It's not nearly as intimidating as you think. And then the second engagement step is groups, which hopefully you've heard us talk a lot about is as our church is growing, one of the ways is to get into groups of 8, 10, 12 people so that you can be known by other people and that you can know other people. And it's one of the key elements of spiritual growth, which we care a lot about here, wherever you are on the journey. So group registration or signups, they open next week. So I hope that you'll be ready for that. I get it's inconvenient. I've got four kids, a million things going on, but we need this. So I'd love for you to engage in one of those two steps. Now, this week, we are in part two of a series I started called Better Decisions, Fear regrets, which I love because regardless of where you're at on the faith spectrum, and thanks for attending online, people all over the state listening via unfiltered radio. So we have a lot of people follow Jesus forever, not even sure if I believe who Jesus is. This is just a thing for all of us to make better decisions. Now, before I kind of get into what we're talking about, one of the things I think is true of like just human beings in general, maybe not everybody, but we love good story. We love to tell good stories. If you're not a good storyteller, like, there's nothing worse than somebody who wants to tell a joke that has no idea how to get to a punchline. But like, you, we love to tell good stories if we're good at it. We love to tell other people's embarrassing stories. Uh, one of the greatest, um, like just, I don't know, funnest things of my childhood was to constantly make fun of, and I just mean this with all due respect, but make fun of and tell stories about all of the embarrassing things that my dad has done. And the list is numerous. Like this was a constant like event for my family to get together and laugh about whatever my dad had done the previous week or whatever. And it's not appropriate for me to talk about, you know, the times where he got stuck under a Coke machine that he was trying to move and was just pinned to a floor, but he was fine. Um, The time that he tried to just clear his head at 3 a.m. and accidentally fell into our pool with his robe on and then tried to cover it up. Or or the time that um, he brushed his teeth only to realize that his mouth was on fire and then discovered that he had brushed his teeth with Icy Hot and not toothpaste. That was a big one. So that, 
that's the tip of the iceberg, and it's not appropriate for me to share any more than that. But like, look, it's just it's one of the funnest things. So we love stories. We love to tell good stories. Um, good books, good movies, Netflix series. Um, for my wife and I, we're very much at odds in terms of our taste. So she loves anything that ends great. It doesn't have to be much of a storyline as long as everybody's happy. Um, I'm way on the other end where she's very disturbed that I can watch serial killer documentaries and then just go to sleep like night, babe. Um, but that, we, just, we have two different tastes. But I just love stories. I love human psychology. I love everything about it. I say all that to say this. That's the thing that we disconnect in regard to our life and specifically the decisions we make. And that is that really in some ways with your decisions, you are building and telling a story about your life. Like when somebody asks you about part of your life or maybe your past, without knowing it, you wouldn't put it maybe in these terms, but you go back to a previous chapter of your life and you kind of tell your story. And here's the thing. While those like decisions and events are going on, we never think of them as stories, almost never. We think of them as current events. So it's about what's right in front of me. It's about maybe a deadline I've got to meet. It's about a decision I've got to make. It's about the emotion of something that I want. And so when we're faced with a decision, we think about like the immediate and not the ultimate. We think about current events, not where is this thing going eventually. But I'm just telling you, every single one of us, with our decisions... And with those seasons of our life that maybe are really complicated, eventually all of them are going to be reclassified into stories. And so one of the major questions that we can ask is kind of what story do we want to tell with our future? Like, do we want to get on the other side of maybe this decision and have a story that we're too embarrassed to tell? Maybe a story that's too painful to tell, or maybe a story that we're proud to tell, But every decision that you make, and we never think about it in the moment, it's going somewhere, it's leading somewhere, and ultimately, it's going to be a story you tell. You write the story of your life, right? One decision at a time. That's how big a deal this is. So I'll come back to that. But in this series, Better Decision, Fewer Regrets, here's the bottom line for the whole series if you fall asleep or you're just uninterested. This is where I hope to get us in four weeks, is I want to draw the connections between really great questions and great decisions, Because one of the things a lot of times we don't think about is if you're faced with a decision, the better the questions you ask, the better decisions are that you're going to make most of the time. So my hope is that you would actually ask these questions that I'm going to unpack over these four weeks. Then you would answer them honestly. And then for the overachievers, you would actually act. You would actually do something. For some of us, we'd actually change something in regard to our decision making. Because all of us know this. We aren't the only people that are impacted by our decisions. Like, you know that already. In fact, depending on how big the decision is, there can be some pretty big ripple effects. And it's not just the decision. We're not the only people that are impacted by the regret that maybe we accumulate from a decision. It's why Solomon's words in Proverbs are pretty powerful in Proverbs 27, 12, when he says this, the prudent see danger and they take refuge. In regard to our decision-making, it means this. They look to the future and they look about where a decision might be leading them, where this is leading in terms of the direction of their life. They recognize that their present decision is eventually going to be their past and it's going to influence their future. And they, they get to an edge of a decision. That's what a, a wise or prudent person does. They get to the edge of a decision and they think about what decision is going to be best based on my preferred future. Because whether you've named it out loud or not, you all have a desire of where you want to be in a year or where you want to be in five years. And more importantly, if you're a follower of Jesus, I think he has a desire 
for where he wants you to be up ahead. So he says, the prudent see danger to take refuge, but the simple or the naive or the fool keeps going and they pay the penalty. Basically, here's what the foolish person does. They get to the edge of a decision and they listen to the naive salesman in their mind. You know what I'm talking about? So he said this last week, all of us have an endless capacity or limitless capacity to deceive ourselves on bad decisions. And we always see it in other people. Like you can look at somebody else and almost immediately have crystal clear insight into the stupidity of their decisions. Is that true or not? It is. And then when it comes to us, it, it just all common sense sometimes goes out the window and we're all guilty. Emotion gets going, our heart gets moving in a direction, or maybe we, we know the magnitude of the decision. And then we just start finding reasons that aren't even reasons to somehow justify what we want to do. And we sell ourselves on really stupid things. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter how high of IQ you have. All of those things do not matter when we get to the place where we start selling ourselves on bad ideas. So here's the first question we introduced last week. On the edge of a decision, am I being honest with myself? Like, why am I really making this decision? Why am I really doing this? And then here's what I said. You got to ask the question the first time and then just know that you're probably going to lie to yourself that time too. Like, you're going to give reasons that aren't reasons. So then you got to ask it again. Why am I being honest? Am I being honest with myself? Dot, dot, dot. Really? Like, what's the real reason? Why are you really doing this? And you have to be willing to be brutally honest even if your honesty makes you feel bad about yourself. Like, there's worse things than momentarily feeling bad about yourself because if you don't know where you are, you have no chance of getting to where you want to be. So this is such a clarifying question, but it's terrifying, which is why we don't want to ask it a lot of times. I know you've given reasons about the thing, the divorce, the business decisions, why you got your kids into that, and everybody believes you, but you know. Are you being completely honest with you? Nothing else we say in this series is going to matter until you can answer that question. And then the second question, this is the question I want to look at today. On the other side of this, I need to recognize that this decision is going to become a story. What story do I want to tell? Because you write the story of your life one decision at a time. That relationship, that season, that business transaction, I'm just telling you, I know it feels big in the moment. I know there's consequences. I, maybe it was very difficult to even decide what to do. I understand all of that. But that big decision, as complicated as it is eventually, is going to be reduced to just a story you tell. And a clarifying question for all of us, because we get caught up in the emotion of the moment with decision-making, is to ask yourself, hey, whatever I decide to do here, here's what I need to contemplate. What story, eventually, this is going to be a story, what story do I want to tell? Is it going to be a story that I got to cover up and hope nobody knows about? Is it, is it going to be a story that I want to tell my kids? Is it going to be a story that I'm always kind of trying to push to the background? But here's the good news, because sometimes we forget this, because a lot of times, as we're going to see in a moment, like we're faced with a decision that is not a great option. Other people have chosen badly around us, and it impacts us. But this is still true regardless of all of that. You get to decide the story that you tell, and you write the story of your life one decision at a time. And every decision, eventually, sometimes it's a decade down the road, every decision becomes a permanent part of your story. And we know that, right? Because every decision, good or bad, has a consequence, has a result, it has an outcome. Like some of you have stories like you're, you were in a work environment and you had a boss that told you to lie to a client 
and you had to kind of weigh what I'm going to do, and there's a lot on the line, and so you ended up lying to the client, and then the client found out, your boss threw you under the bus, you got fired. Your other option is, I was faced with really a a situation that was no win, but I recognized that there was a broader context to my decision making, and as hard as it is in the moment, I decided I was told to lie to the client, I'm not going to do it, I was fired anyway. Both of those are really bad outcomes, but one of them is a better story. And one of them is a story that you're going to carry with you into the next season of your life. Or maybe you're in a situation where you met this guy and it wasn't really great and you were kind of bored and you had a lot of questions about whether this was really good for you, but you went forward with it anyway. And then you get two years down the road and you recognize it was a train wreck from the beginning and you kind of knew it. And now you feel like you wasted two years of your life. Or you're maybe a couple semesters now where you've had to say no to some really hard things or say no to some friends, and it was really difficult to do, but you've kind of semester over semester, you've been able to do it a couple times now, and you're writing a really good story, and it hasn't been easy, and it hasn't been without consequences, but it's a really good story. Every decision you're making is writing a story so that when there is nothing left but a story to tell, this is the question I want you to ask, what story do I want to tell? Like, I get you lost your job. It's not what you would plan. It's not what you want. What you do while you lose your job in the midst of this can be a story you tell. It's a story of I drank too much, I accumulated debt that I didn't really want, and I got on the other side of it to go, I wish I would have written a better story. Or you're maybe walking through something right now where, like, she's married and you know it, but there's, uh, there's just kind of something going on, and you know if you give the signal you can kind of move forward with this thing and you're thinking in terms of immediate, you're thinking in terms of emotion, you're thinking in terms of some other stuff that you feel justified about in your life, but you're writing a story, a story that might look like, hey, I kind of played my part in busting up a marriage and then we had to shuttle the kids back and forth. Everything ultimately ends up as a story and eventually, here's what I know about you, this is what I know about me, and we're not gonna get this perfect. Like, let's just all get on common ground. You have regrets already. I've got regrets already. I've got messed up decisions already. But for, in terms of the landscape of our life, we want to be able to live in such a way that we can tell our story without skipping parts, without burying parts, without having to edit it for our kids, for our grandkids, or for our future spouse. You wanna be able to get to the next season of your life, just like I do, and not have to lie about you. So what story do you want to tell? Now, here's, here's why this is difficult. Because we think, we think in terms of decisions, we think about emotion. We think about the pressure of the decision. Again, we don't think about the larger landscape of a story. Like, you, you've been in these situations, right? Like, there's a deadline. You've got to decide. And all you can experience is the pressure. Like, I just have to decide. I've got to make a choice. I've got to say yes. I've got to say no. And we're thinking about the deadline and not the story. Or you're in a, maybe a relationship and they're like, hey, you either marry me or I leave. And you're thinking about what everybody thinks about. I don't want to be left. I'm not really thinking about the story that I'm going to tell with my life. I'm thinking about the immediate consequences of the decision. Or maybe you're in a place where like you meet your quota or you get fired. And when you feel the emotion and the pressure and everything that's at stake, maybe for your family, it's so easy to think about the, the pressure of I meet the quota or I'm fired rather than, hey, even in the midst of this and even though there's stuff at stake, this is going to be a story that I tell. Like we think in terms of immediate, we don't think in terms of ultimate. And it, this is the reason, because there are no neutral decision-making environments 
ever. There's always emotion. Your heart always wants stuff. There's always consequences. There's always pressure that you feel. I mean, all of our greatest regrets are tied to emotionally appealing things most of the time. Like, you, you just, you start to feel it, you start to want it, this is going to make me happy. You might not even say it out loud, but you justify. Psychologists actually have a term for it, they call it focalism. That anytime your appetites get involved in decision making, and by appetites I mean just the stuff you want, even if it's I want to make sure I maintain security, or I don't want the consequences of this, or like I want this relationship, or if I buy this, whatever it is. When your appetites get involved in decision making, psychologists will tell you this, you lose your mind. Because you just forget about everything else. It's all about, right now, it's all about what I want. And you're not thinking six years down the road. You're not thinking six months down the road. You're not thinking about how this is going to impact them. You're not thinking about the fact that this very decision is a decision that you would tell a friend never to go down that road. It will undermine their own peace. And yet you have justified to yourself that somehow it's going to be different for you because that's just what we do, man, that's just human nature. It's the salesperson inside of us where focalism gets us to this place where we want what we want and we ignore all of the other data. And then we're prone to make decisions that ultimately undermine our own future. Or in my notes, in emotionally charged decision-making environments, we think in terms of options, not stories. That's why when you're faced with a decision that has strong emotional appeal, you should pause before you decide. And it doesn't mean that thing isn't good. You were, you were created with passions and desires and you're, you want stuff. I mean, that's God in you. But sometimes we, we kind of get seduced into thinking because I want it badly enough, because I think it's gonna make me happy, because I, like, I feel the emotion, that that's just a green light. No, no, no. When you feel that, that's a red flag rather than a green light. That is a pull back rather than lean in. And after pulling back, after taking the red light, it might be exactly what is best for you and exactly what God has for your life. But you need to proceed cautiously because those are the moments where you are most prone to sell yourself on really stupid things. Your emotion gets going, you want it, and you end up down a road you didn't really want to end up out. So what story, if you're on the verge of a decision right now, what story do you want to tell? This is really the context for, man, one of my favorite characters in all of the scripture in the Old Testament, Joseph, if you know the story. And if you don't, I'm going to catch you up real quick with this thing. And if you've heard this a million times and saw it on flannel graph, just don't tune me out. I'm going somewhere. All right. Does anybody know what flannel graph is? Okay. That's four people that grew up in Sunday school. Um, so like the story of Joseph reveals the power of this question about story. And honestly, it reveals the power of this question shaping legacy, like how big this is for the next seasons and chapters of your life. If you know the story about 1800 BC or so, Joseph is 17 years old. He is one of 11 kids. He's the youngest at this point. Later on, he has another brother, but he's got 10 older brothers. His dad um, marries multiple women and his dad has a favorite wife, which if we could just stop the story right there, like you know there is family dysfunction up ahead and it's not gonna end well when any dude has a favorite wife, okay? So he's got a favorite wife and Joseph becomes the favorite son. So they're just ripe for conflict and dysfunction. And his brothers get so unbelievably jealous, like out of their mind, they decide, this is how extreme it gets, so maybe this will make you feel better about your family. They decide that they're gonna try to kill Joseph, and then they rethink it and they're like, no, should we kill him? 
And then there's like this little hint of mercy. I don't even know if it was mercy. It was more like if we kill him, then he's just dead. If we sell him, we make a profit off of him. So they decide, as crazy as it, they're going to sell Joseph into the slave trade. Now, just real quick here, Joseph is telling a story with his life, but what's also true is Joseph's brothers are telling a story with their life. And Joseph's brothers start to tell a story that there was 10 of them, and they had a younger brother who probably was a punk, and he was his dad's favorite son, but still, they ended up getting to the place where they wanted to kill him, and then they sold him, and then his brothers went to their dad, who is heartbroken, devastated, and made up a story or a lie that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. And Joseph's brothers would carry that story for the rest of their life, and it wasn't a great story. Like, there was 10 of us, there was one of him, and we sold him. And we lied to our dad, and then we covered up the story for most of the rest of our life. Like he, he, here's what I would tell you about them that's so important for us. They backed themselves into a corner where Joseph's brothers became liars for life. Don't ever make a decision that's going to tempt you to become a liar for life. To always edit the story. To always try to finesse it. Because long after what you gained is gone from that decision, you will be left with the weight of your story. And so there they are, and Joseph ends up on the auction block, and he's sold to this guy by the name of Potiphar, which is a high-ranking military official in the most powerful kingdom of the world at the time. And again, Joseph has a decision to make. Usually, you would just do what any other slave does, which is I'm going to try to run because I'm, I'm, I'm being sold. I'm going to pack it in. I'm not going to do any re for real work. Why should I? Like, what's, what's it going to get me? I I'm just going to kind of abandon God and here, and this is where it becomes so relatable to us, and the story becomes so relatable, because none of this is Joseph's fault. He's in a position, he didn't make any of these decisions to get here. And, like a lot of us, his story has been hijacked by other dysfunctional people. His story has been hijacked by other selfish people. You can even make the case his story has been hijacked by other evil people. I think it qualifies if you, you know, are considering selling your brother or killing him like you got issues that you need to work out. And so there Joseph is, his, his story has been hijacked. And here's where all of us, I think, in our honest moments tend to land. Why should I even try? Why should I even care? Honestly, nobody else cares about me and maybe including God or why, why would I end up in this place? And yet you see Joseph go all in against all odds when seemingly, if you don't know the end of the story, it, it's not gonna get him anything. And so Potiphar takes him in, he eventually notices him, he puts him in charge of his entire household, which was a big deal. And by the way, Joseph could have never gotten into that position without the circumstances that kind of wrote this story. He puts him in star charge, and, and if you were to just stop right here, so far Joseph is writing a pretty good story. I mean, besides the kidnap part, <laughs> besides the being sold two times part, but then from there, he ends up in a position that he, he never could have dreamed of in spite of everything that had been done to, them, to him. And he doesn't live as a victim. He decides, I'm going to write a good story, which means all I can do is get up every single day and do what anybody would do who was sold into slavery and then ends up in this household with no future, but they are confident that God's with them. And Joseph just got up every day like, I'm just going to do that. And I'm going to decide to write a good story. And then the story, if you know it, intersects with somebody else's story. 
And so Joseph gets in a no-win situation, works his way back up over several years, and he ends right back up in a no-win situation with Potiphar's wife. Genesis 39.6. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. So Joseph is jacked, men's health cover model, like whatever their equivalent is. And here's why this is relevant, verse 7. After a while, his master's wife, Joseph, this is full-on cougar mode because Joseph's about 19 years old right now. After a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, without a hint of subtlety, no pickup line, come to bed with me. And there Joseph is, being asked by a much older woman to become her lover. I, I think he's one of many. He's 19 years old, and this is a no-win situation. Like, this is a death-or-death death situation. Like, if I give in to this, somebody finds out I'm probably dead. If I don't give in to this, I'm probably dead. And as 19-year-olds, he's probably thinking, well, then what the heck then? I, I might as well just give it. It doesn't seem like anybody is noticing. And here's what I love. All, read it for yourself in Genesis. All throughout the story of Joseph, all these terrible things happen, and then Joseph's response is spectacular. But as these really terrible things are happening that Joseph has nothing to do with, there's these little lines that keep showing up. And God was with him. And God was with Joseph. Joseph was sold by his brothers, and God was with him. Joseph was in Potiphar's house and then eventually he's gonna be accused falsely of rape and God was with him. And if I'm like just me in the story, which it wouldn't be as spectacular as Joseph's story, about halfway through, I think I would be like, hey, could God go be with somebody else right now? Because it's not working out great for me. <laughs> and there Joseph is in a no-win situation. And if you know the story, he opts for a better story. And, and little does he know, this is such a powerful moment, Joseph would end up telling his story for the rest of his life over and over and over again. In fact, his story and what he does in these moments is what ends up catapulting him into a position he never could have imagined because by the time he gets there, he doesn't have to edit any of it. And essentially, here's what Joseph does that is so powerful for us is Joseph is in this moment with a no-win situation with his boss's wife, and he does something so powerful in that out loud he, re- he rehearses the context of everything that has happened that actually provides the context for his response. And he recognizes there's a lot of pressure right now. And there's a lot of emotion. And it would be easy to think about immediate and just the preservation of my life. But there's a broader context. In fact, this is my paraphrase. You can read it for yourself. Is This is his, Joseph's response, and he rehearses this out loud. Mrs. Potiphar, I came to this land as a slave. I had no rights. I had no future. Your husband purchased me, and I did my best to serve him and you, but I'm not going to do it in this way. Through hard work and God's help, I've gained the trust of your husband, and he's put me in charge of the entire household. I never could have dreamed that. And then to quote Joseph directly, verse 8, with me in charge, Joseph said, He told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. He trusts me that much. Everything he owns, he's entrusted to my care. And no one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me. uh, I mean, except you, because, you know, by the way, you are his wife. And in this moment, here's what what Joseph is kind of like twisting the knife on with Potiphar's wife. Hey, hey, just so you know, I know you, you know, you can kind of do whatever you want. And your husband's the boss. Uh, but just like my brothers and just like me, you're writing a story too. And I don't know if you want a fair with the Hebrew slave boy to be a part of that story. 
And then Joseph steps back and he basically rehearses everything that's happened to this point. Because it's not just about the moment. There's such a larger context. He even rehearses her husband's kind of graciousness to him, if you could put it that way. And he rehearses the fact that God has been merciful and with him every step of the way. And because of that context, here's the question that Joseph asks at the end of verse 9. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And the temptation, if you're looking outward into the stories to go, the God who's not done a whole lot for you recently. But Joseph knew that he had a story to tell and he did not really want to add to his story, which had been pretty heartbreaking, pretty hard, but simultaneously pretty miraculous. And I think Joseph had some kind of inclination. His story was not over yet. And I'm not going to add had an affair with my boss's wife to this. I, there, there's two options. Hey, your husband took me in. He was incredibly gracious. He trusted me and I was faithful with his trust and I was faithful with the fact that God's been with me every step of the way. Or the other option or other story was your husband gave me all of this, honestly, an opportunity I could have only dreamed of, gave me his trust. I ended up taking his trust and taking advantage of it and sleeping with his wife. And that's gonna be a story that I tell for the rest of my life. Life. And this is where I just want to encourage you because it's so hard for us to think about this. What story are you going to tell? Because eventually as complicated and as emotion filled as this is, and all of us understand those dynamics, we're all there all the time. Eventually as big and complicated as this is, it will be reduced to two sentences. So in the middle of your decision making right now, when this becomes just a story you tell and it will, what story you want to tell? What story are you writing? And then as you probably know, Joseph decided on a better story and he says to her, like, I, I, I'm not sleeping with you. And in verse 10, and though she spoke to Joseph day after day, and I'm pretty sure she did more than that, he refused to go to bed with her and even be with her, even though he has no idea how this is going to end. And this is so important for us because we felt this dynamic. He does what is right and it doesn't turn out right. He does what is right. Like at this point, I'm like, I want some credit for this. He does what is right and it doesn't turn out right. And again, little did Joseph know. The story he's writing right now in this moment, he'd end up telling this story multiple times. It would become the catalyst for everything that God wants to do in his life. And so she accuses him falsely of rape. He's thrown into a dungeon. But his story isn't over. And neither is yours. And one of the things that, that the enemy wants to do in the middle of a season or a circumstance, or you're starting to get to the backside of a decision, one of the things the enemy wants to convince you of is that this chapter of your life is more than a chapter, that this chapter is the whole story. And I just want to tell you, and you see this throughout the scriptures, throughout the New Testament, a chapter is just a chapter. It is not the whole story. 
And one of the ways, in a lot of cases, that you determine how this season ends, that you would never choose, you did not decide for them, you're dealing with the carnage of somebody else's decision, there is so much pressure, you could choose something and justify it because of all that's happened for you, and it just feels like all the emotion, all the pressure, everything that you're dealing with, all of the layers, maybe the multi-generational stuff, puts you in a place where it just feels like the chapter is more than a chapter and it's not. And how you decide to respond has a lot to say about how you end this chapter of your life. And you serve a God that is able to take really crappy chapters of our life and other things that people have done to us. And if we will decide to respond in a different kind of way with the decision we make, believing that God is with us anyway, God can rearrange some things and set us up for a future that we never imagined. But one of the ways that you will immobilize yourself, give up, quit, and say, I'm done, is to start to believe the lie that this moment is bigger than it is. It's not the whole story. It's a chapter of the story. And you have a resurrected Savior that's able to do a lot with the end of it. If you're familiar with Joseph's story, you know he decided really well. He's thrown into a dungeon. And again, like just the reality of it, I would just be like, why keep trying? I did everything I could to work my way up and then no fault of my own. That's just enough to set most of us off to just quit. And he ends up in a dungeon. He decides, no, no, I'm going to work with everything I got in me. He, he earns the favor of the prison warden. It's a direct quote. I love that line because I always read that and I'm like, if, if God's really with you, I don't think you even know a prison warden. But there Joseph is like, he's well, great. You got the favor of the prison warden in a dungeon. But he keeps working his way up and he ends up, this is such a powerful story, he, becomes, he runs the whole place. Such extraordinary leadership, trustworthiness, that you would allow a guy in the dungeon to run the dungeon. And then Joseph meets what he thinks are some good friends. He's like, hey, here's my story so far. And he tells it to him. And he's like, hey, if you guys ever get out of here, because he knew they were about to get out, could you, could you just put in a word for me? And they get out of, out of the dungeon and completely forget about Joseph. And Joseph spends, don't, don't miss this. This is important to your story. Several more years in the dungeon. Finally, Pharaoh has a dream. He's trying to get somebody to interpret it. Joseph's long lost friends are like, oh, we remember. There's a guy in the dungeon. You should go talk to him. He's been sitting in there for a couple of years. We said we were going to put in a word. We forgot, but he's kind of a dream interpreter. He might be able to help you. And so they go and they, they, bring, they bring Joseph after all of these years before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. And Pharaoh says, I hear you can interpret dreams. And then just, just pause real quick. When, when you go through really hard circumstances and you decide that with my responses, I'm going to decide well anyway, I'm going to trust God anyway, it gives you an extraordinary confidence even when things have not gone well. And you see that because Joseph stands before the most powerful man in the world, but Joseph has seen some things by now. And Pharaoh's like, I hear you can interpret dreams. And Joseph's like, nope, I can't. And everybody in the room is like, are you, what are you, Joseph, what are you doing, man? This is your big opportunity. Like Pharaoh's a big deal. That's the last thing you want to say. Just fake it till you make it. But then Joseph's next words are, no, I can't do it. But my God, and this is very offensive. Pharaoh thinks he's a God. My God can do, the Hebrew God can do this. 
And somehow Pharaoh is not offended, he's curious. And Joseph begins to tell the, the interpretation of the dream, this prophetic dream, that there's going to be seven years of famine, uh, or actually seven years of plenty first, where there's going to be an overabundance of a grain harvest, and that, you know, it's going to be more than they ever thought of. And then there's going to be another seven years right on its heel where there's going to be a massive famine that's going to affect every part of the region. People are going to starve to death. Grain was so important in that culture because every, this bread was the staple of everything. If you don't have grain, literally people starve to death. And so Joseph tells the whole story. This is what's going to happen. This is what your dream means. And then, and this is unheard of, it's crazy. This is the confidence of a man that's been accused of things falsely, ended up in a dungeon, almost killed by his brothers, trusted God anyway. And wrote a really good story in the process. He says to Pharaoh, hey, Pharaoh, can I give you some unsolicited advice? I mean, he's, he's just, he still smells like dungeon. He's a, he's a Hebrew boy, has no right to talk to Pharaoh. And so he begins to instruct Pharaoh on here's what you need to do. You need to find a great leader. They need to administer this whole thing. You need to open up the grain silos. You need to get prepared. Then all of the surrounding nations are gonna come to you when the famine hits. And Pharaoh looks at him and rather than killing him, it's like, that's a really good idea. And in verse 38, can we find, and this is Pharaoh, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom the spirit, of the, God, the spirit of the God lies on, rests on? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all of this known to you, there's no one so discerning and wise as you. Well, we've only known five minutes, each other five minutes, but you just feel like the right guy. You shall be in charge of my palace and all of my people, which is crazy. And all of my people are to submit to your orders only with respect to the throne. Why be greater than you? And Joseph has sat in a dungeon for a couple years on top of all he's already experienced. And there he is. Multiple times he made decisions where the consequences could have ended badly. In his case, could have ended with his life ending. And there he is before Pharaoh being offered the opportunity of a lifetime. What I love about this story is Joseph finally gets to that place and he doesn't have to edit any of it. He doesn't have to skip any parts. He doesn't have to try to finesse it or justify it or get anybody to understand it. Joseph was just able to go, here's all that's happened to me and here's how I've responded and here's how God has been faithful every step of the way and here I am. And Joseph is made basically prime minister of Egypt and he begins to do the work that he said he would do and he leads brilliantly and they have seven years of incredible grain harvest and they fill up the silos and Egypt is good, but every other surrounding nation begins to starve when the famine hits, seven-year famine. And so Joseph, because he had done the hard work, he opens up the federal grain silos and everybody's coming to Egypt, including Joseph's brothers. And it ends up in a moment where Joseph's brothers are kneeling down before Joseph and they don't recognize him because he looks a lot different at 30 than he did at 17, but he knows exactly who they are. And Joseph is in the enviable position of having the people that hurt you the most bow down to you. And you have all the power in your hands. And finally, he reveals his identity and you can imagine how they respond. They are terrified. Because Joseph is gonna do what any sane person would do. This is my opportunity for revenge. This is my opportunity to get back on the people who sold me and initially tried to kill me. And I've got all the power. 
But simultaneously to Joseph's brothers writing a story, Joseph had been writing a story. And what his brothers didn't know is Joseph had never been like them one moment of one day. And Joseph wasn't like everybody else. And Joseph hadn't responded like everybody else for about 13 years now. And Joseph, one of the brilliant things about Joseph's life is Joseph encountered unbelievable stuff. I mean, just hard things. And he never reacted. And because he didn't react, react, he kept himself from becoming like the people he didn't like. I mean, God loved them. But you're going to have issues with people who tried to kill you and sell you. And there they are before Joseph. And Joseph had been writing a story for over a decade. And he decided against the gravitational pull of bitterness. And he had every reason to be bitter. Every single one of us could justify that to friends and be like, of course you are. Joseph never did it, which means he lived free. And then when those seasons and those decisions, those moments came that were unexplainable and so hard and there was no good options, no win situation, he didn't choose any of it. He was free to decide differently anyway. And over and over again, Joseph went against what was cultural and what was normal and he decided to write a different story. He decided to write a story that was worth telling. And it was the reason that he ended up in the position that he did and his brothers were there bowing down before him. It was the reason that Joseph was freed up to do what many of us can't do, to not write revenge into his story. And he ushers his brothers to Egypt and he gives them a home and he shows them extraordinary mercy because that's what Joseph had done for over a decade. And he wasn't gonna write in at this point in his life with all that God had done, with all that he had seen, getting back at his brothers. And multiple thousand years later, here we are and we're telling the story of Joseph. So here's here's a question I wanna end with and I'll be done. This brings us back to us. What story have you told so far? What story are you on the verge of telling? What story are you in the middle of writing? You're faced with a big decision. You're trying to figure out between a couple no-win options. What story do you want to tell? And this may be a better question. What story do you want to be told about you? Because Joseph had a choice of what story he was going to write. Joseph's brothers had a choice of what story they were going to write. You are writing a story one decision at a time. And here's where I want to encourage you, again, if you miss anything else. Before you just move ahead with that and justify that and, and get a couple people on board with you so you can appease your conscience, can I, can I just give you this one litmus test? Do not... Like Joseph's brothers, do not make a decision that is going to make you a liar for life. Just stay away from a decision that you're going to have to edit, that you're going to have to finesse, that you're going to have to bury, that you're going to have to be embarrassed of because long after whatever you have gained from that decision in that moment, you are going to be left with the weight of that lie. Every decision you make becomes a permanent part of your story. Decide well. Write a really good story. And here's the other thing I would say, because I want to encourage you. If you haven't decided a good one so far, 
I want you to break the stronghold of the enemy who wants to, to quote scripture, steal, kill, and destroy your future. He's been a liar from the beginning. He's still a liar. And the thing that he's going to want to do to debilitate you is to convince you that that chapter or those chapters of your life are the whole story. It is not the whole story. It is a chapter. And I love the New Testament gospels, man. This is what it means to follow Jesus when you come to a place to believe that Jesus died for you, for me, for our sins, past, present, and future. I believe historically, you should study this if you're a skeptic, walked out of a grave alive and then he invites us to follow him. And over and over again, hey, Matthew, you are busted up in a mess. Follow me. Hey, Zacchaeus, you are one of the shadiest people I've met on the circuit. Come follow me. Religious zealots, political fanatics, people that have got past that would trump us over and over and over again. Jesus over and over again with his huge speeches with pimps, prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners on the front row. And Jesus' message was consistent the whole time. I know the chapters of your life. I know what's come up to this point. But you are about to realize when I culminate my ministry and eventually I die on the cross for your sins and then do something anchored in history through a resurrection is that I'm able to turn around and resurrect anything. And Jesus invited a bunch of people that had accumulated multiple chapters of dysfunction and said to them, not only will I change the trajectory of your future because I am a God of resurrection, reconciliation, and redemption, I can take the worst chapters of your life and use them for your good and my glory because that's what a God who defeats death does. It's never too late. The chapter is never over. It is not the full story. And if you served any other God, you would have every reason in the world to quit. You don't if your Savior walks up out of a grave alive. Do not allow the enemy to convince you that this chapter is the story. So I just want to challenge you on this one kind of declaration. I will decide a story that I'm proud to tell. And even in that, from this point forward with whatever has come before me, God has a way of even rearranging that. But I think this is a question that's broader than just a moment or a decision. It's every season of our life. Like you're walking through a lost job right now and it's not what you would have chosen. But for some of you, what you choose to do right now, you're a your kids eventually will interpret through an adult grid. And it might be eight years down the road. Make sure you write a good story for them. For some of you, you're walking through a divorce and it is unbelievably painful. And so much has been done that you didn't choose. Here's what I know about you because you can't control all of that. You're gonna to wanna to get to the other side of this and you're gonna to wanna to be able to tell your whole story. Write it well. Some of you are in, in the midst of like some really tough stuff in terms of semester or where you're going next as a 16 year old and, and it's hard and I get, especially in those seasons, like there's so much emotion. One day it'll become a story you tell. Maybe you're in a place right now where you're dating and you're making decisions constantly and it's easy to think about the immediate and not the ultimate, but eventually this might be a relationship, a story that you tell your future spouse, write it well. Or maybe, and this is the one that gets me because I feel the weight and the pressure. And parents and kids, and you're not gonna get that right. 
In fact, one of my prayers is almost every day is that God would make up in their life through relationships and just his grace all of the areas were deficient. But here's what I do know is that my kids are gonna live out of my story at some level and they're gonna react to my story and they're gonna respond to my story and they're maybe gonna be inspired by my story or they're gonna have to overcome my story. So I wanna write it well. So every time you are faced, and in some cases you might be there right now, an impossible decision or just an emotional decision or I'm not sure this is best, but I want it decision. Would you just stop and begin to develop this as the habit and discipline of your life to just go, man, before I get caught up in all of this, what, when this is just a story I tell, what story do I want to tell? What story do I want to write? Would you stand with me? If you don't mind, all over the house, I just want to pray for you. Jesus, I thank you so much for what you're doing in this moment. Thank you for those attending online, listening via radio right now physically in the room. And I know this hits a thousand different places. So as I pray often, give us clarity and wisdom to know what to do, to ask and answer these questions, and then give us courage to act. And I pray that where we are reminded of the busted up dysfunctional decisions, as, as again, we pray often, I pray that we confront that truth, but as you've promised in the scripture, this is a part of your nature and character. Where we confront and realize that truth, you would bring the full measure of your grace. So do your thing. Confident you will. You're good at it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.